Hello, I'm Boy Sprint volunteer Martin Downey. With me today is Donna Kakonga. And join us now for Behind the Wheel, Boy Sprint's program for the auto enthusiast. We begin with For the Love of the King and the Caddy by Phil Marchand from the August 1st edition of the Toronto Star. If you want to penetrate the mystery of Elvis Presley, Collingwood's annual festival is a good place to start. Every July for the past 15 years, the historic town on Georgian Bay has played host to a legion of portly men in white jumpsuits, tribute artists competing to be the best reincarnation of the king. This year, 120 artists were on hand. They all gave robust performances, but in the end they were not as revealing as the 1959 pink Cadillac convertible cruising down here Ontario Street. Rick and Brenda Gogwen of Miramichi, New Brunswick, found the car in a junkyard nine years ago. The car was a total wreck, a rust bucket with vanished floors and ruined upholstery. But the discovery was fateful. From an Elvis point of view, since he loved his Cadillacs, Brenda had seen too many Elvis impersonators riding in new Cadillacs at car shows. Marvels of technology, these modern cars might be, but what would Elvis make of them, with their somber styling and discreet paint jobs? I just thought it wasn't right that she saw Elvis driving around in new Cadillacs, Brenda says. That was the main reason we got this. To that point, the Gogwens were more or less your average Elvis fans. I liked him, but I wasn't a huge fan until we got the car, Brenda says. Now it's all Elvis. I even named the car Priscilla. Here's the wonderful thing. Priscilla, Elvis's wife, was named Borlow. That's my maiden name, too. So it was just meant to be, she laughs. Right, honey? They showed me a photograph taken in Vegas when they were remarried a few years ago. Just for fun, Brenda says, by an Elvis impersonator. In the photograph, the man who performed the ceremony is not wearing sequins or a cape, but he does have black, shiny Elvis hair. When I drive the car, I have to dress the part, so I pick a hat and put a pink ribbon on it, Brenda says. I wear pink as often as I can. You just play the part. Two things I have learned with this car. One, you can't be in a hurry, and two, you can't be shy. Rick cautions, I wouldn't call us Elvis fanatics. She has some memorabilia, but I keep it under control. Brenda laughs. He has his sailing stuff. I have my memorabilia. The king of rock and roll's passion for Cadillacs is well known, though it's true that he owned other cars on occasion. While serving in the army in West Germany, he drove a BMW 507, a hot two-seater that was no shabby set of wheels. Presley took cars very personally. Later in life, he bought a yellow 1974 Pantera sports car for an actress girlfriend. When the Pantera failed to start one day, he shot it full of holes, combining in a perverse way his two great loves, automobiles and firearms. The Pantera, intimidated perhaps by Elvis's fusillade, started on the second try. Elvis could buy any car he wanted. He once owned a Rolls Royce, but Cadillacs were always first in his heart. When he came into the big money in the mid-50s, he bought his beloved mother a pink and white Cadillac. Yellow Panteras were strictly for starlets. 
His mother's car was a pale pink, a softer, paler pink, more like a salmon color. But I wanted something that was out there, Brenda says of her '59 convertible. Early in the restoration process, the Gauguins acquired a model of a similar car. I had to have the paint specially made. I took the die-cast car and sent it away to Halifax. They scanned it and came up with something they called atomic pink. People automatically associate pink with Elvis, and that's kind of what I was going for. Elvis in pink, not a traditional manly color to be sure, but Elvis frequently performed in the early years in a pink jacket. So perhaps it's not such a stretch. I talked to Sunny Potts, an Elvis fan who regularly attends the Collingwood Festival, and drives his '55 Crown Victoria in the classic car parade. The Ford looks pink and white, but Potts corrects me: it is tropic rose and snowshoe white. The point is, such flamboyant colors were never common choices in Canada or the Northern United States. There was a lot of turquoise and white, a lot of yellow and white in this area. Red and white was another common color, Pot says, recalling rides of yore. But I never saw this color in areas up north. It's a southern color. If Elvis equals pink and pink is a southern color, perhaps the Elvis cult is one more manifestation of the southernization of American culture. Along with NASCAR racing, Coca-Cola, country music, televangelism, and big hair, I consult my dictionary of symbols and find that pink represents sensuality and the emotions. That fits too. The shy, almost feminine beauty of Presley's face, a glory that remained even when his body bloated and his spirit sickened, and the stirring quality of what Sunny Potts calls his deep vocal music add up to something timeless and sensual and emotional, and atomic pink. It's appropriate that pink should evoke the '50s so well, despite that decade's reputation as being sexually repressive. In car design, the decade was a confident and flamboyant era, a time when designers and car owners didn't feel they had to apologize for anything. Gas was cheap and limitless. The turnpikes were new and the driving was good. Cadillacs were Cadillacs. Back then, chrome talismans of progress and prosperity. I stand by the Gauguin's tail fin dream machine and look at the other cars in the lot. A sea of anonymous gray transportation appliances. Gray, according to my dictionary, represents neutralization, egoism, depression, inertia, and indifference. It's no wonder that people spot the pink convertible and want someone to take their picture leaning against the fender, as if the vehicle were a sacred relic of the king. You've been listening to "For the Love of the King and the Caddy" by Phil Marchand from the August 1st edition of the Toronto Star. You're listening to "Behind the Wheel" on Voiceprint. This article, titled "A Buick That Could Excite a Young Man's Passion," is by Bob English from the July 30th edition of the Globe and Mail. Buick, one of the original brands with which General Motors was launched more than a century ago. Remains a key element in the recently restructured company's trimmed-down portfolio, but the median age of Buick buyers last year was 68. What they bought was a couple of nice enough, but rather less than enthusiasm-generating sedans and a luxury-laden crossover. But what the brand now needs to survive by enticing a younger buyer group is the modern equivalent of the 1987 turbocharged Grand National. 
That model lured Brian Harper, then in his mid-twenties, into buying a brand linked more closely at the time to American-style middle-class mediocrity than performance, and which has managed to keep his enthusiasm operating at a high boost level for more than a couple of decades now. Buick is hoping its new 2010 Euro-flavored Allure sedan, a version of which is equipped with a 280-horsepower V6, will do the trick. We're looking at something that's drastically different than what you think of as a Buick. Craig Beerley, Buick's product marketing director, was quoted as saying recently, "Whether it will be seen that way by today's younger car buyers, that term being relative as any improvement on '68 would be welcome, remains to be seen. But its 1980s forebear, the Grand National, certainly was. Not that the brand was completely without a performance heritage." Buicks had been raced successfully back in the earliest times by the likes of Wild Bill Bergman and the Chevrolet brothers. Its nailhead engine of the early 1950s, so-called because of its small valves, introduced a new level of performance before entry-level luxury once again became the dominant theme. The 1960s, however, saw performance revival with the arrival of the Wildcat, followed by the Grand Sports, the GS, and the GSX. With 455 cubic inch V8s, but the last of these were built in 1972. The Buick name was also familiar on NASCAR tracks, starting in the 1950s, running in the Grand National Series, and with the arrival of the downsized Regal in 1978, became a force to be reckoned with by the early 1980s. The Regal Grand National arrived on the scene in 1982, available with either a 125 horsepower 4.1 liter V6. Or a turbocharged version that pumped out 175 horsepower, a hot hatch's output today, but a semi-serious number again after the performance drought in the late 1970s. Only 215 were made, and none at all in 1983, but it returned for 1984, wearing the sinister black paint job that became its trademark and lasted until production ended in 1987. That year, Harper had just received a promotion. And the larger pay packet and his single status meant he could indulge in a new car, one of the 20,193 Grand Nationals built that year. Harper, now living in Coburg, Ontario, grew up in the Port Perry area, where he was influenced as a teen by the Oshawa-built Iron of the day, driven by neighbors, many of whom worked for GM. There were always a lot of nice cars around, and by the time I got my driver's license, I was getting really interested," says the 48-year-old. Harper went on to study engineering at U of T, and then got a job with what is now Ontario Power Generation at its Darlington operation, where he works as a control room operator, keeping an eye on the reactor. His love affair with muscular American metal began with his first car, a 1967 Beaumont Sports Deluxe, purchased in 1979, and went on to include a '69 Camaro, '71 Chevelle, and Nova SS, a '72 Chevelle, and a '73 Camaro. These weren't collector pieces, just daily drivers, he says. Harper purchased his 1987 Grand National because it typified the American muscle car style—a big car, a two-door, but with lots of room inside and in the trunk, and lots of power. It was also unusual for its time. It kind of came out of nowhere with its turbocharged V6, and it could beat the Corvette at the drag strip. He also saw it as a last chance to buy into the breed. As GM had announced, it was discontinuing its rear-drive G-body range. 
Harper paid $24,000 for his 87 Grand National and kept it for about four years before marriage and raising a family resulted in its sale. It was my down payment on our first house, but as it went down the street with its new owner happily driving away, I told my wife, someday I'm going to own another one. That opportunity presented itself in 1999 when he came across a 1987 whose owner was in a similar situation to that which Harper had been in years before. We still keep in touch. He's always interested in how the car's doing, says Harper, who paid $18,000 this time around. Harper explains that the Grand National is essentially an option package ordered on the base Regal and included appearance features such as the menacing all-black paint, blacked-out trim, unique interior pieces, wheels and tires, and, of course, the powertrain. This is the car's really unique feature, a 4.1-liter V6 equipped with a turbocharger and intercooler that created a factory-rated, but deemed conservative, 245 horsepower at 4,400 RPM and 355 pound-feet of torque at 2,000 RPM, coupled to a four-speed automatic transmission. The engine is a bit of a freak of nature, he says. For what it's rated at, it makes an incredible amount of power and torque. Harper describes the Grand National as a real sleeper. It can just eat up the quarter mile, and it beat a lot more of expensive and supposedly racier cars. His all-original example, with just over 100,000 kilometers on the odometer, has proven reliable and isn't even too bad on gas. If you keep your foot out of it, put your foot in it, and it's a different story. You've been listening to A Buick That Could Excite a Young Man's Passion by Bob English from the July 30th edition of the Globe and Mail. This article titled The Car Henry Ford Didn't Want to Build is by Bill Vance from the July 24th edition of the National Post. The Ford Model K could be called the car that history forgot, and even Henry Ford would rather have forgotten it. It arrived in late 1905 as a 1906 model and was made until 1908, built under protest before Ford gained the iron-fisted control of the Ford Motor Company he would later enjoy. The Model K was a large luxury six-cylinder car, when most other luxury automakers were still making do with four cylinders or less. Cadillac, for example, was still building one-cylinder cars, although it added a four in 1905. Peerless got a six in 1908. When Henry Ford finally got his Ford Motor Company successfully launched in 1903, his third attempt, the first went broke and the second became Cadillac, he had the financial backing of Alexander Malcolmson, a wealthy Detroit coal merchant. In those early days, the automobile was often only affordable by the well-to-do like Malcolmson. He was naturally influenced by his circle of friends and contacts and saw luxury cars as the way of the future. Ford came from more modest means, having been born on a farm near Dearborn, Michigan. Although mechanically talented, he was an unsophisticated man with deep suspicions of wealth and power. His idea, like that of Ransom E. Olds of Oldsmobile, who was building the popular small curved dash Olds, was that cars should be affordable to the multitudes. And the way to achieve it was to keep them basic and turn them out in large numbers. The way to make automobiles, Ford said, is to make one automobile like another automobile, to make them all alike.
This philosophy would come to fruition in Ford's beloved Model T, of which more than 15 million were built from 1908 to 1927. But in 1905, Malcolmson still held the power, although Ford built light cars such as the two-cylinder models A and C and four-cylinder model B. Malcolmson saw a future with more luxury models because more than half the cars sold at that time were high-priced. Thus, in 1905, the Ford Motor Company introduced the Model K. It was a large luxury car, the opposite of what the Model T would be. It had a big 6.6-liter, 40-horsepower side valve, inline six-cylinder engine. It was initially priced at $2,500, later raised to $2,800. This was a huge amount of money at the time although it was still relatively inexpensive compared with other luxury cars. The Model K's six iron cylinders were individually cast integrally with their cylinder heads and bolted to the crankcase, as was common practice. It had a seven main braking crankshaft and drove the rear wheels through a pedal-operated two-speed planetary transmission, which proved marginal for the engine's power. Suspension was by longitudinal leaf springs, not the transverse leaf springs for which Ford would become famous, and mechanical brakes operated on the rear wheels. The K came as a touring car or roadster, with the lighter roadster guaranteed to reach 60 miles an hour, 96 kilometers an hour, a performance benchmark at that time. In fact, the Model K driven by Frank Kulik and Bert Lorimer covered 1,827 kilometers in 24 hours for an average of 76 kilometers per hour, a world record proving that the K had both speed and durability. Although Ford maneuvered Malcolmson out of the company in mid-1906, he allowed construction of the K to carry on until 1908. When the Model T arrived to sweep all before it, despite the K's high price, it is unlikely Ford made any money on it, although it did add a measure of prestige. Ford wouldn't build another six-cylinder until 1941. With the arrival of the Model T, the Model K and others were discontinued and the Ford Motor Company became a one-model company. This lasted for 14 years until 1922, when at the urging of son Edsel, titular president of the company, Ford bought luxury car company Lincoln out of receivership. Although the Model K never sold in large numbers and is now largely forgotten, today's market is now largely a premium on it as a collectible. Good Model Ks can command prices of more than $250,000 at car auctions. Maybe somewhere, Malcolmson is having the last laugh. You've been listening to The Car Henry Ford Didn't Want to Build by Bill Vance from the July 24th edition of the National Post. You're behind the wheel on voice print. I'm your volunteer reader, Martin Downey. This column, titled... Women Riders Turn Some Heads, Open New World to Six-Year-Old, is by Lorraine Sommerfeld from the August 1st edition of the Toronto Star. Molly Lucas wants a motorcycle. Molly is six. I met Molly a couple of weeks ago on a day spent on the back of a Yamaha FZ1. 
I was on the back because I am not allowed to be on the front. That would require a motorcycle license, which many of you know I failed to obtain last fall. I did, however, stay in touch with my instructor, Liz Jansen. Through her company, Trillium Motorcycle Tours, she offers motorcycle trips ranging from one day to a week. She invited me along for a recent women's networking ride, knowing full well I would be shifting on the back of her bike and yelling, "Are we there yet?" As I pulled into the meeting place in Brampton, where Liz's sister Mary, she was to drive the chase car, I saw fifteen motorcycles. I also met fifteen women who couldn't be more different if you'd call them up from Central Casting. Some had been riding most of their lives. Some were eager to try out newly earned licenses. A gorgeous tricked-out Harley, beautiful cruisers, a couple of starter bikes, jeans, leathers, even a pair of pink chaps, a paralegal, a flight instructor, a banker, a military woman. Moms, wives, divorcees—a spectacular tangle of women clustered around Liz to receive instructions before heading out. The common bond being just the two wheels they leaned on. Against the spectacular backdrop of Dufferin and Gray counties, we wended through farmland. Driving in the lead, Liz set the pace as the riders fell into natural patterns. With another instructor mid-pack, another at the rear. And Mary buffering in her truck, riders knew they would have built-in safety nets in case they lost the leader or ran into problems. While I've often seen groups of motorcycles, I've never actually been in one. When I was a kid, a large group used to make my mother nervous. She'd only let us wave after she'd ascertained they weren't likely to make soup from our bones. A funny thing happens when people realize it's wind riding. Little kids wave, men double take. And I swear I saw more than a few women give pause. Talk turned inevitably to differences between male and female riders. With more women on their own bikes, I wondered aloud about how riders might differ. Men rev their engines to scare the cows, stated Madeline, an instructor herself. This struck me as just mean. The cows run, which they think is funny, she continued. We didn't scare any cows, though I made a note to myself to ask my male colleagues about this. I'm sure they'll deny it. As we stopped for lunch at the beautiful Walters Fall Inn, Molly and her dad, on a break from visiting friends in nearby Meaford, were lunching a couple of tables over. Mr. Lucas told us that Molly was in totally enthralled with the motorcycle ladies. She'd insisted on eating on the patio with us and was dying to sit on a bike. She grinned from ear to ear while perched on a silver blue Harley Davidson, and I made a note to forward Liz's card to the family. Looks like Liz will have another student in ten years. You've been listening to "Women Riders Turn Some Heads, Open New World to Six-Year-Old" by Lorraine Summerfeld from the August first edition of the Toronto Star. This column, titled "Action Needed to Rouse Lazy Drivers to Change," is by Linda McAvoy from the August first edition of the Toronto Star. Of the seven deadly sins, pride, avarice, envy, wrath, lust, gluttony, and sloth, is perhaps the last one. Sloth, the drivers are guilty of most often. 
No doubt a strong case could be made for wrath, think road rage, and granted more motorists do take pride of ownership a bit too far, while others have been known to lust after a particular set of wheels. Car envy is never pretty, but judging by what I've seen on the streets lately, it seems that sloth has definitely taken the lead. Face it, when it comes to driving, it's easy to become a little lazy, a little complacent. Most of us would probably admit to occasionally letting some of the finer points of driving slide. But in truth, it seems that far too many drivers are habitually disinclined to drive properly. They're lazy. Easily recognizable, these sluggards always take the car, no matter how short the distance, and once behind the wheel, are loath to leave the driver's seat. They favor the horn over their feet. Hold no hope of these types ever politely ringing the doorbell. They are the double parkers, more likely to circle the block than to parallel park. They're the ones who endlessly troll the parking lot in hopes of snagging a spot closest to the mall entrance. The worst of them stoop to appropriating handicap spaces, ignorant of the fact their disability is self-imposed and does not qualify them for special parking privileges. Already suffering from tendinitis of their left elbow from taking all their sustenance at drive-through windows, these slackers would likely pull a neck muscle if they ever check their blind spot something they rarely do because, for them, even flicking a pinky finger to activate the turn signal is far too strenuous a task. They're not ones to extend too much energy, so reaching for their seatbelt is out of the question, as is cranking hard enough on the steering wheel to end up parked within the allotted space. They avoid laborious braking at all costs preferring instead to roll through stop signs and the occasional red light. Executing a proper left turn onto a multi-lane roadway requires far too much effort. Their sloppy wide turns have them heading straight into the curb lane or straddling by the solid white line until they finally pick a lane. Once settled, usually in the passing lane, they couldn't be bothered to move, selfishly ignoring others trying to pass. A courtesy move-over for motorists merging from one on-ramps is, of course, out of the question. Prone to idling and littering, these slackers go through a winter without wielding an ice scraper. They couldn't be bothered to clean off their headlights or any other part of their car, no matter how dirty it gets. Beyond annoying, their indolence is often dangerous, as in the case of the driver who, after missing an exit, finds it less work to reverse along the shoulder of a busy highway than to simply drive to the next exit and turn around. After witnessing these antics, one can't help wondering if ticketing these drivers would help rouse them from their slothful ways, or would they be too lazy to even pay the fines? You've been listening to Action Needed to Rouse Lazy Drivers to Change by Linda McAvoy from the August 1st edition of the Toronto Star. You've been listening to Behind the Wheel on Voice Print. For Donna Kagange, I'm volunteer reader Martin Downey. The studio producer for this program was Paula Deneen. Thank you for listening to Voice Print. <laughs>